Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 62. In this episode, I plan to take on a message entitled, The Christian Hope, A Person or a Place? This question will be examined through three different lenses. What is the Christian hope? 1 Corinthians 13 and 13 says, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. We seem to have a reasonable handle on faith and love, though we must all admit that we probably have a long way to go on both these fronts. However, what about hope? This blessed assurance of the Christian, what exactly is it and how does it shape our lives today? That is the two-part question I would like to try and answer. All unhealthy forms of Bible teaching have one thing in common. They always place an overemphasis on people groups, places, and things. All good and healthy Bible teaching is grounded on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as its center. For the purpose of this message, I would like to make the argument that the theme of Christian hope is not heaven, the place, but rather God, the person. There is a big difference between these two concepts, and I think if we understand that difference, it will enable us to better recognize our purpose in this present world. Let's begin with John 14. In this famous chapter of Jesus speaking about his father's house and going to prepare a place, Thomas in verse 5 asks a very interesting two-part question. He says, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And to this two-part question, Jesus provides an answer to the second part first, and then he answers the first part of the question second. He says in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, to describe where Jesus was going. What, what way are you going? He says, I am that way, the truth, and the life. And then he answers the question, the place where he's headed. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. We often like to substitute the word father in this well-known verse to heaven, but that's not what Jesus said. In fact, in John 14, he doesn't use the word heaven at all. The term my father's house is often tied to the place where heaven and earth intersect. And it seems to fit that rendering here as well, since Jesus is speaking about his father and humanity dwelling in the same place. So if the Christian hope is a person and not a place, then what does that practically look like? I think a healthy way to see the Christian hope is through three different lenses. For those that wear glasses, you know that a good lens can provide a better perspective. Some people need more than one lens to see near and far, but in Christian theology, we often need a few different lenses, several lenses, to get the more 3D colored rendering of truth. I think that is why we have four Gospels. They all speak to the one Gospel message, but from four different viewpoints, or what we would say four different lenses. The first lens to Christian hope, and the only one we often use, is the lens of life after death. Here's a question. Where does a person go that dies in Christ? The obvious answer we always give is heaven. In fact, we often preach that the Christian will be in heaven forever. 
But ironically, the Bible doesn't actually say either of these two statements. And since the scriptures are inspired, we should clear out some of the fog in these worn out lenses so that we can get a clearer view. What language does the scriptures use to describe believers in Christ who die? Well, the first example, Luke 23 and 43, Jesus on the cross, he turns to the thief and he says, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise is a Persian word. It has the idea of a lovely garden, a place of rest. But you'll notice from Jesus's words, the emphasis is not on the place. The emphasis is actually on the persons, you and me. In John 14 and verse 2, Jesus uh, famously speaks about his father's house. And in his father's house are many mansions. The word mansion in uh, King James's day, he would have known very clearly that it didn't mean a, a large home in the sky, that it actually just meant a room. And the idea that is described here, the focus is not about this actual location, but actually has to do with you being with the father because he has a dwelling place that can bring these two parts, these two relationships together in one home, in one dwelling place. Interestingly enough, the word mansion in the Greek is actually not used for a permanent location. It is actually used to describe a temporary location on a long journey. Again, like paradise, a place of rest, like a hotel room on your way to your final destination. When we look at this example, in fact, there is very little uh, description of what is described of life after death, except what we have in Philippians 1 and 23. In that passage, Paul says, I'm torn between two desires. I long to go to be with Christ, which would be far better for me. Again, we see it's all about persons. It's not about places. It's about I being with Christ. So from the language given in scripture, and there's not much given from uh, for this lens of life after death, what we do learn is that the believer is at rest with Jesus and secure in the Father, and that this is the first great prospect for the Christian hope in this interim state. Let me give you a quick example of this, illustrate it a little more. I oftentimes will tell people that I'm going home. To me, home is where my wife and children live. I rarely tell people that I'm going to my home address in Maple, Ontario, Canada as the definition of my home. Because even if that is the address where I go each night, it's only home because that's where my loved ones are. When we are in Florida as a family, I will often say it's time to go home when we are out for the evening. I'm not at all referring to our place in, in, in Maple, uh, Canada but rather where the family actually stays when we're in that particular area. In a similar fashion, the Christian hope is not the address to a place we call heaven, but rather to the person, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who makes it our home. It is clear to me in an examination of the New Testament that when Jesus is in heaven, we see believers there. When he's in the air in 1 Thessalonians, we see believers there. And when he's join, re, uh, reigning on earth, we see believers there. Home is where God is. It's not an address book 
on the spiritual GPS. This is very important because as we take this first lens off, there are still two more to put on and neither of them have much association at all with heaven, the place. So the Christian hope in life after death, if I was to die right now as a believer, my great hope uh, that I have, the Christian hope in the interim state is that I will be home with Christ. I will be, as Paul says, with Christ, which is far better. Now let's move on to the next pair of glasses. The next lens we need to put on to understand Christian hope in a more 3D colored rendering is the lens of resurrection. My brother-in-law, Justin, speaking at the graveyard of his grandfather a few years ago said, uh, "My gra this is what he said, and I, I still remember it. He says, my grandfather is waiting for the same thing all of us as Christians are also waiting for today. And I thought to myself, that's a very interesting statement. We often say that when someone dies and they're with Christ, they now possess everything and we're the ones that are, uh, are missing everything. But in the description that he gave there, he, he made it clear that there was one thing that believers with Christ now are still waiting for and anticipating that we as Christians living on planet Earth today are waiting for and anticipating as well. What is it? It's resurrection. You see, to be home with Christ or to be with Christ is a beautiful prospect in the interim state, but we are not complete without resurrection. If resurrection does not occur, then death has not been defeated, and the Bible clearly tells us that this is the last foe to be destroyed. In the context of the martyred saints that speak in Revelation, we see that they are still waiting for more of God's plan to unfold. They are, they are not yet at their final state. Revelation 6 and 9 says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? And to that statement, verse 11, we read, Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer. This idea of mansion and paradise, we see it again. Rest a little longer until the full number of your brothers and sisters, the fellow servants of Jesus who were to be martyred, had joined them. You see, it is this lens of the Christian hope that finds itself saturated in the pages of Scripture, this lens of resurrection. Here's just a small sample size. In Job 19, 25 to 27, Job says these words, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, my body, yet in my flesh, in my body, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold, and not another. Job had the blessed assurance in his heart that though he would die, yet he would be raised again to glory, and that in the last days he would stand on the earth with his God, with his Redeemer. Daniel, the prophet, had a very similar vision and uh, concept. Daniel 12, 2 and 3. He writes, And many of those who sleep, the same word that Paul uses, it's a very Jewish and Christian word to describe believers who have died in the Messiah. He says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, 
and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Again, Daniel had this clear vision that the glorious prospect, the lens of hope to the children of God has always been centered around resurrection, eternal life. We go into the New Testament. This is just, again, a sample size. John 11, 25, Jesus is speaking to Martha. And what does he say? He says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. This is a paramount truth of the Christian faith that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And though this body will experience death in all likelihood, yet the great promise is that I will be resurrected again to glory. And of course, 1 Corinthians 15, 16 to 19, Paul illustrates this same truth again in this sample size. He says, and if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. The second lens of the Christian hope is resurrection. The physical bodily resurrection of Jesus is the down payment and promise that we will be resurrected in the same way. Our eternity is not the disembodied soul in a disembodied heaven as the Greeks taught, but rather of a new body being united with soul and spirit of becoming true image bearers of God in the full sense of the meaning. When Jesus comes back, he will complete this promise of the Christian hope and it is this lens of resurrection that should equally flood our souls with an assured hope of our future in Christ. So those are two lenses to the Christian hope, life after death and then resurrection. I want to close by considering with you a third lens. Once we allow the, the, the lens of resurrection to begin to take its effect on our thinking, then and only then will we be ready to put on this final lens of the Christian hope. This is the lens that I'm going to entitle life after life after death. You see, life after death is just an interim state, but life after life after death is a new beginning. Sound, godly, and very productive believers and theologians can and do contest a lot of things about the order of future events. Some take a preterist view and believe some or much of prophecy in scripture has already been fulfilled. There is the futurist view that believes that most or all of future prophecy still needs fulfillment. And then you have a few schools of thought somewhere in the middle. However, it is interesting to see that most of the contentions and disagreements end at this stage in the journey. We often call it the eternal state. Most believers who do the careful study see the same things unfold with much smaller vari variation. But sadly, it is this third lens that is so often left tucked away in a drawer that many believers ne never really get to enjoy. It is this lens of life after life after death. This is the moment when justice has been served. It is when the old is done with and the new is now all that remains. It is the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. 
One of my favorite passages in scripture, Revelation 21. We'll start reading at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, follow these words, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. He's the one who said that at the cross as well. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God. And they will be my children. Wonderful words. I love them. God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And he will take up residence with his people and will dwell with them on the new earth. If we study the biblical narrative, we see that this concept is always the case when we consider the interaction between heaven and earth, which, by the way, were made for the mutual benefit of one another. We see this in creation story in Genesis chapter 1. So I'm just going to trace through a few examples here. Creation, Genesis 3 and 8, when man sinned, we read before that time and up to that exact moment. We never read of man going up to be with God, but even in this state, we read that God came to be with man. And so when man sinned, we read that in the cool of the day, man and, and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the God, from presence of God, because God was walking in the garden at that time. And so God was the one, even in those days, that came to dwell with man. Heaven and earth intersecting, coming together. We see this in the Genesis account. We move then to Exodus, the time where the tabernacle was built for the people of Israel. And again, we don't see man going to God. We see God coming to man. And in Exodus 40, in verse 34, when the temple or the tabernacle was constructed, we read, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the place. It wasn't that man went up and filled the place called heaven, but heaven came down, this working model where God and man would be brought together. And we see it clearly evidenced in the tabernacle. And when the cloud was raised and moved on, the people moved. And when the cloud sat in the tabernacle, they stayed because God was dwelling with man. Heaven and earth were intersecting together. Of course, we get the same language with the temple. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1. When Solomon finished praying, uh, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice in the temple, and the glory of the Lord filled the place. Again, man didn't make their way to God. God came to be with man. Heaven and earth were intersecting again by God coming to dwell in this temporary place, but he was coming to dwell with humanity. It's interesting that after the, uh, the, the, the destruction of the temple and the exile period coming 
while we thought you think it comes to its end, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, some of these prophets and scribes, they return to the land, they rebuild the walls, and ultimately they rebuild the temple. But interestingly enough, we do not read of the glory of the Lord returning as we have with the cloud or with the fire. We, we don't have this Shekinah glory, this promise of God resuming his, his occupation and his dwelling place with the people. And so by the time the... Uh, Maccabeans conquered and and ruled the land. The Jews ruled the land for over a hundred years between the Greeks and the Romans, and then the Romans defeated them. In all of that period of time, the Jewish people never believed even once that they had come out of exile because they were waiting for the Shekinah glory to return. They knew that they were waiting for God to return to be with his people. And so we have this exceptionally religious movement that unfolds, which we know of today as the movement of the Pharisees and even somewhat of the Sadducees. And what they were trying to do is they were trying to enhance the law and they were trying to follow it to its extreme extreme form by adding more laws to it and safeguards around it because they thought their, their ancestors went into exile because they broke the law. So if we follow it so stringently to the level of perhaps great legalism, that God will then return. The Shekinah glory will come back. It didn't. Or did it? Matthew 1 and 23, we have the the great passage. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. What does his name mean? Us going to God? No. God with us. The picture is exactly the same. God came to tabernacle with men and he does it in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly God and truly man. The people in the second temple uh, days, second temple Judaism, were waiting for the Shekinah glory to return. And one day it did in a little baby and an old man named Simeon and an old woman named Anna. They recognized that the glory had filled the temple again. It had come in the person of of God's own son. And so you can continue to trace this through. Uh, Of course, in in John 14, we have two examples given of this. We have in verse 25, the promise of the Holy Spirit coming. And on the day of Pentecost, did, did, did the apostles go up and ascend to heaven? No, the Spirit of God came down and descended upon them. And just like the story of the tabernacle, and just like the story of the temple, The Spirit of God came down and the imagery again was like fire. This is to show the same imagery that God comes to dwell with man. And this time it wasn't a structure. It was the actual human beings themselves. This is the birth of the church when the Spirit of God dwells in people. And so we again, we see that transition. We see that same unfolding message of the biblical narrative. God coming to dwell with man. And in John 14, there's another interesting example given. Uh, Jesus answers them in verse 23 and he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, father and son, will come to him or to her and we will make our home with them. That word home is the same word mansion earlier on in the chapter. And it is the only time that word is used, this temporary dwelling home. It is the only time it is used in all of the New Testament. So even here we have this example of God coming to dwell with us. This is the third great lens of the Christian hope. The life experienced in the life after, life after death reality. So in conclusion... Let's go back to the beginning here, my initial question. 
What exactly is the Christian hope and how does it shape our lives today? I've made the argument the Christian hope is seen through three different lenses, like four Gospels pointing to the same thing. The Christian hope requires three different lenses to get that 3D colored rendering of truth. Number one, in life after death, if I was to die right now, or if you have a grandfather or a grandmother or a son or a daughter who died uh, as believers, you have this first blessed hope of the interim state that they are with Christ. Wherever he is, if he's in heaven, they're there with him. If he's, if he's in the air, they're there with him. If he's reigning, they're there with him. And that promise is the same promise we hold today, that if I die today as a believer, that I will be with Christ, which is far better. The second lens is the lens of resurrection. It is the strongest lens of the biblical narrative. It's stronger than the other two. From, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it is found throughout the bodily resurrection of all. But to us, just the great promise, the bodily resurrection of the saints. Jesus died. He was buried, but he rose again. He literally rose again from the dead in bodily resurrection. And because he did it that way, that is the bodily resurrection that we are to live with the great expectation of because that is the Christian hope that body, soul, and spirit will be brought back together. We are not the disembodied souls living in a disembodied heaven forever. That is the teachings of the Greeks and the pagans. The teaching of Judaism and the teaching of Christianity was always focused on resurrection glory, a resurrection that only the Messiah would bring. And of course, the last lens of the Christian hope is new heaven and new earth reality. We are living today with the great expectation that all that is old in the world is going to come to an end and it will all be replaced with the one who will make everything new. And that's what he calls us for. The gospel message to the individual is that they will receive the good news of God's kingdom and the good news that Christ is the king and that he has made provision and that this old world is headed for complete and total judgment and justice is going to be served. And we will either live in the, in the destruction of that old world or we will join ourselves by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus and to that, that king that came, the Lord Jesus himself, by aligning ourselves with him, we are guaranteed the promise of this new heaven and new earth reality. And that is why Paul says to the Christians living today, we are already new creatures in Christ. We live with that great hope. The hope of the Christian is not only future, but these truths can also be realized and experienced in real ways in our present life. So home with Christ will ultimately mean that God will dwell with us as he always intended. All of prophecy and fulfillment of scripture is seen in Christ in this final reality. The one who died, this great mediator, has brought to bear in the present as well as in the future the great reality of bringing heaven and earth back together. God and man reunited in perfect relationship where justice, mercy, and humility reigns. So for us today, this is the great hope for the Christian, not only for our future, but we can enjoy it in the present. 
Christ is with us now. I think of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, going into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Read the end of the commission. We often forget the very end of it before Jesus, before Matthew's gospel ends and Jesus ascends into glory. He says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The great promise of the Christian hope future is I'll be with Christ and yet positionally today, I enjoy the present reality that Christ is with me now. I live in the great expectation that this body of mine, though it decays and it it breaks apart, that one day I will receive a new body, a resurrected body. And yet I live today in the great hope when I was baptized as a believer, that when I went into the waters of death, I was associating my, my life with Christ. And when he was raised again to glory, that I was linking my life with his again. So resurrection is something I enjoy today, even though I will experience it in its fullness in the future. And the new heaven, new earth reality, I'm a new creature in Christ now, even though the great hope is that he's going to make everything new and I am part of that reality. So be encouraged, dear believers who are listening today. The Christian hope is bigger and grander than we think. May God bless us with his grace, these promises, and this truth. Mm-hmm.